Well, like I said, since it's uh, the beginning of the year, we're going to do something just a little bit different at the start of our study tonight, and then we'll get into chapter 9. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know what 2017 is going to look like? <laughs> Nobody. Good. Good for you. Now, next question, though, is this. How many of you are pretty sure you're going to love everything God chooses to do in the next year? <laughs> Probably not, right? We're in a time in our house where it's a major time of what's next. We actually have four graduations coming in this year. With our, we only have three kids. <laughs> but there's our son graduating high school, but he's also going to be graduating with his AA degree from Eastern Florida. And then we have a daughter graduating from Florida State University and another daughter graduating with her master's degree from University of Central Florida, all happening this year within two months. Yet at the same time, with that comes the whole tumult that a lot of you probably have been through of what's next and internships and jobs. And of course, they'd love to be married and all that kind of stuff. And we're dealing as we're walking our children through life on the whole process and the whole issue we all have to deal with of trusting God and being patient for God to work things out in his way, in his time. And, you know, we're all real good at that, you know. And with that in mind, we actually, as a family, I challenged my family before the end of the year to get ready for 2017, to just take some time meditating on Psalm 37. And if you ever want to do that on your own, I'll challenge you. It's, it's a great, great passage, all of chapter 37 of Psalm, to just really allow the Lord to speak to you, to prepare your heart for what's to come. And... and as we've been doing that, it's been neat as I would have time to spend with each of my kids during this time we've been away that I would get with them and say, what are some things God's been showing you from this? And it's neat to hear the Spirit of God speak to your children and that they're getting it and they know how to hear from Him themselves. Yet at the same time, there's going to be those times where we still don't understand what He's doing and why this is happening or why something hasn't happened. And in that whole process, someone sent something to me actually yesterday, right before the Bible study, and I don't know if they even intended to have it used, but they said, here's something you can use in your Bible study. But it so fit with what God's been speaking to me about that I actually texted him back and said, you may be surprised because I'm going to use it. Now, i got to be honest with you. Most of the time when people send me stuff, especially if it comes with, if you don't send it to 10 people, God doesn't love you and all that kind of stuff, but... <laughs> I'll just tell you now, if you're going to send me something that says, you know, the angels will bless me if I pass it on, just don't waste your time because it's going in the recycle bin. But at the same time, I want to read to you what this person sent, and, and, and it's going to tie into our study tonight as well. It said, one Sunday morning at a small southern church, the new pastor called on one of his older deacons to lead in the opening prayer. The deacon stood up, bowed his head, and said, Lord, I hate buttermilk pastor opened one eye and wondered where this was going. The deacon continued, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was totally perplexed. The deacon continued, Lord, I ain't too crazy about plain flour, but after you mix them all together and bake them in a hot oven, I just love biscuits. Lord, help us to realize when life gets hard, when things come up that we don't like, Whenever we don't understand what you are doing, that we need to wait and see what you are making. After you get through the mixing and the baking, it'll probably be something even better than biscuits. Amen. Isn't that cool? 
And to be honest with you, it started something in our family that we have started yesterday. Whenever stuff happens and stuff's going to happen that you don't understand what God's doing and you don't like it, but you have to trust him. I say, I hate buttermilk. It's my way of saying, I don't like this, but I trust God. My wife, she's chosen to say I hate lard is what her thing is. But it's reminded me of a poem that I ran across. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I want you to go find it. It's easily findable on the Internet. It's called God Knows by Minnie Louise Haskins, written a long, long time ago. You can tell by the wording how long ago it was written. But listen to just the beginning. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God trod gladly into the night. And he led me toward the hills and the breaking of the day in the lone east. So heart, be still. What need our little life or our human life to know if God hath comprehension? In all the dizzy strife of things, both high and low, God hideth his intention. God knows his will is best. The stretch of years which wind ahead so dim to our imperfect vision are clear to God. Our fears are premature. In him, all time hath full provision. There's more to it, but I just encourage you to go find it. And I just want to challenge you and encourage you, but at the same time challenge you. We are, as people of God, for those who know Christ and have Christ within us, we're supposed to be shining as lights in this world. And in these days that are very, very dark, would we not agree that things are pretty dark? It should be very easy for us to shine. But the sad thing is, is most Christians today are just as worried and just as distraught as those who don't know Christ. And yes, God does things we don't understand. And yes, God does things we don't like. But you know what? Just because you don't like lard by itself or buttermilk by itself, you do love biscuits. And we need to wait and trust that God, when he does the things we don't understand, and we see that just by itself, he's doing something. He's doing something much greater. And so go out into the dark and take hold of the hand of God, because that will be better than a light and safer than a known way. So with that in mind, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. Like I said, you're going to see as we get into some of the things tonight from our study, how that's going to be applicable as well. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, the scripture goes on and Ezekiel says, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapons in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, which it rested to the threshold, on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. 
Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck this in the city. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded me. Now, as we break down chapter nine, we need to remember that we're in the middle of Ezekiel's vision that began in chapter eight and will finish at the end of chapter 11. If you remember, Ezekiel was sitting in his house. He's in captivity in Babylon, but he's in his house and the elders of Judah are around him. And as he's there, all of a sudden he's taken by the, by the Lord in the spirit in a vision to Jerusalem. Go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And then I looked, and behold, a form of a, that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. Remember when we were last time together, I kind of referenced the fact that this is probably very similar to what we see in a lot of the Christmas carol stories how as Ebenezer Scrooge is taken by the Spirit, either by his hand or whatever, and he's taken to see what he sees. His body stays there in the bed in his house, but he's taken in this vision. Ezekiel, in the same way, was taken by God. But it's so real and so lifelike that that's why Paul, when he wrote what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes, I know a man in the body or out of the body, I don't know, was taken to the third heaven. And he said it a couple of times, whether I was in my body or not, I'm not really sure, because it was so real and so lifelike that what happened. So as we get to chapter 9, we see that Ezekiel says, then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, Who's the one that's crying in, in Ezekiel's ear? Who's the one that's shouting out loud in Ezekiel's ear? It's God. We just saw here in chapter 8 that it's God who shows up, takes him in this vision by the Spirit to Jerusalem. Look at verse 7. And he, still God, brought me to the entrance of the court. All right. And then look at verse 14. Then he, still God, brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And in verse 9, then he cried in my ears with a loud voice. It's God who shouts really loudly. Oh, by the way, if many, hopefully you know what it means to hear God speak. Hopefully you understand what it means to recognize as you're reading the scriptures to the spirit of God bringing in, in some, not just inspiration, but revelation as he opens the word to you and help you see it. And hopefully there have been times that you sense the spirit of God leading you and directing you. But let's be honest, if anybody actually heard an audible voice, which God does sometimes, but if anybody heard an audible voice, it'd probably scare him to death, wouldn't it? But what does the audible voice say in this instance? That was a question, by the way. I had one of those questions. Bring the executioners. Just imagine the thought of God shouting, bring the executioners. And these six angels show up and they stand there 
by the altar, the bronze altar. If you know what the altar is, the bronze altar was the thing that they did the sacrifices on in the temple before the holy place, which was right in front of the Holy of Holies. We need to not miss something that's going on here. And in order for you not to miss it, i got to take you back to something we looked at last time we were together. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 8 and look at verse 16. And he, God, brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, that's the bronze altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Do you remember when he was taken in that vision to the temple to see what was going on? Actually, at that time, there were these 25 men who were there at the bronze altar. They are back to the altar, back to the temple, facing the east, and they were worshiping the sun. Now, what does Ezekiel see right there by that altar at the same time? Six angels who have weapons for slaughter in their hands. These 25 men that are worshiping the sun, which they ought not to be doing, there at the altar of the temple have no idea that right there in that same room were six angels set apart by God to kill them. They're just waiting for the signal. And it reminded me of a story from our childhood. Go back with me to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22, we're going to look at verses 22 through 35. This is a story of Balaam. If you don't know anything about the story, Balaam was a prophet, and Balak, this king, an enemy of Israel, wanted to pay Balaam money to go and curse Israel. Balaam liked the idea of the money, so he thought, well, I'll just go see what happens. Look at verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as was as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with the drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the, You have been so mad you'll talk to a donkey and not even think about it? And the Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. I thought he should have kissed the donkey on the mouth is what he should have done. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. 
And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I'll turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I'll tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. But here again, we see that, that folks, you do hopefully understand that, that what we see and feel and taste and touch is not the real world. The real world is the spiritual realm where God exists, which has always been. We have a tendency, though, to have an attitude that what we can see and taste and all that, that's the real world. And I, how many times as a pastor I'd be sharing something from the Word of God and talking to people about trusting the Word of God and believing that God said it and it's going to happen. And I have heard so many people say, well, I live in the real world. And I say, no, you don't. You live in the world that's been made. The real world has always existed where God is in the spiritual realm. And hopefully you do understand this. You science folks know it even better than I do, but there's a light spectrum and there's a whole broad spectrum of light. And our eyes only have the ability to see just a small portion of it. Just one side, one to one side, you get ultraviolet light, but we can't see it with our eyes. We have to get machines to be able to see that kind of a thing. Does that mean it's not there? No, of course it's there. And think about the fact that right now through this building, we got all these signals and waves and radio waves and the fact that things are talking to satellites back and forth. Just passing. Just because you can't see them, taste them or touch them doesn't mean they're not real. And folks, I just want you to understand, and we're going to take some time tonight to deal with this, that one of the things that we're going to need to understand as we head into 2017 is that we have to be reminded on a daily basis that the real world is not what we can see and not what's really happening in this area, but it's in the spiritual realm. And these people here were walking in complete disobedience and they had no idea that the angels of God were there ready to kill them, waiting for God to give them permission. Now, who was with these six angels, by the way? It says there in your passage there, and go back to Ezekiel chapter 9. Who was with them? A man clothed in linen. And what does this man clothed in linen have? He's got a writing instrument. All right. Now, there's a great debate as to whether or not this man clothed in linen is Jesus. I personally lean toward no for scriptural reasons. But even if it is, that's fine. It's definitely someone of royalty and, and authority because the clothed in linen is very clear from that. Uh, but at the same time, I'm going to just tell you, don't waste your time arguing over that kind of stuff because it doesn't really matter. All we know, though, about this person clothed in linen is the fact that this person has been tasked with doing what? Marking the foreheads of who? Those who are grieved over what's been going on in the city. Not everybody was involved in this, and there were some that were grieved over what's going on. Hopefully that many of us are grieved over what's going on, not only in our country, but in our state, but also in the world. Hopefully we're grieved over it. We have to be real careful that we don't think that if we get the right politicians in office, we can change it. The Bible's very clear that the wickedness is going to increase and get worse and worse until the end. And our job is just to be salt, and salt slows the decay. It doesn't stop the decay. But with those who are grieved by it, this individual went out through the city and put a mark on their foreheads, the seal of God. And then the, other, the, the slaughtering angels were told, go and kill everybody except those who have had the mark. And this is why when I taught you the book of Revelation, I stressed to you the importance is that if we knew the Old Testament, 
The book of Revelation would have never been uh, hard to understand, would have never been confusing, because almost everything that we see in the book of Revelation had already had precedent in the Old Testament. Go with me to Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, we're going to see in verses 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every, every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it lists the 12 tribes and how there's 12,000 from each tribe. And folks, if you remember in our study of Revelation, at this point, the church has already been taken to be with the Lord in the rapture and the tribulation begins on the earth. But before the angels are allowed to do any kind of destruction, the wrath of God begins in the beginning of the tribulation, not at the midpoint, as some people try to say. But before the angels are allowed to do any kind of destruction, they have to wait until what happens? 12,000 Jews are sealed, and God puts a mark on their foreheads. And we're going to come back to some more of this in Revelation in just a second. But this whole idea of God marking some as protected from the angels of destruction goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Remember when the nation of Israel was in slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh kept saying yes and no and yes and no about letting them go. And God said, I'm going to do something that's going to tip the scales in my favor and he'll finally let you go. And then he said, look, you guys, you Jews, you go now and you go back to your house and you go find a lamb. And they need to be a year old and without blemish and you welcome it into your house on the 10th day of the month. And on the 14th at twilight, I want you to kill it. I want you to take that blood and I want you to put it on the doorposts of your house. And that night the death angel passed through and killed the firstborn of everyone, slave, rich, even the animals, except who? Those who had the blood applied. They had been marked to be set apart so that they couldn't be destroyed. And so I really want you to understand that. And go to Revelation chapter 9. You're in chapter 7. Go over to chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 12. It says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then the smoke came, out of the smoke came locusts of the earth, and, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who what? don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. And again, in this instance, if you remember from our study of Revelation, they, they didn't kill them in this instance, but they tortured them. And they were in such pain, they wished they could die, but they weren't able to die for five months. Then look at verse 13 in the same chapter. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, I just want to remind you of something here. First off, in Ezekiel, we see that the six men are angels, and they appear to be the good kind of angels. In Revelation, though, when God uses created beings like angels to do His work, and the, the slaughter of mankind and the torture of mankind, they're demons. In chapter 9, it's obvious that they're demons because they're coming from where? 
out of the bottomless pit, out of the abyss. Remember when Jesus walked on the earth and the demons saw him and they said, hey, we know who you are. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? These are demons that come out and torture people during that time. And at the same time, these four angels who are bound by, at the great river Euphrates. Yes, sir. Jim, something that we can take comfort in mm -hmm. Where are, you, where are you going with this, though? It should strengthen our faith in the situations that we face today. Oh, without question. Actually, we're going to be going there because we're going to be dealing with, but let me clarify for you as well, though, John. The word remnant or the term remnant always refers in the Bible to the Jews. The church is definitely protected, and we are God's chosen people. But whenever you see the remnant, you're going to see it all through the Scripture. It's always referring to the nation of Israel. He's always had a remnant of the people of Israel. And even in Revelation 7, he's setting apart those. And we're, going to, we're actually going to cover that right now. We're actually going to be going to that. My mm -hmm. use of the word remnant mm -hmm. focuses not on the Jewish nation, but those who follow him in faith. Yep, and that's where we're going. And that's where we're going. But I want to lay out for you the seriousness of that. But we're definitely, I know the preacher in you wants to say, yep, let's go. You know, but what I want you to understand, though, is don't miss this. These are, these are bad angels. They're bound at the Great River Euphrates. And they're released, and this is what I don't want you to miss, for the moment, the day, and the year. In other words, that time's already been set. Don't fall into this mindset of, that God hasn't decided yet when this is all going to happen. Then we go back to Acts chapter 17. Paul tells the Areopagus in, in, in Mars Hill that God has set a day that he will judge the world. It's already been set. And this time that the angels are going to be released to kill a third of mankind during that time of the tribulation period, they're waiting for that exact... They already know the, it's time. They know what it's set for. Now here's the deal. Go to... Um, Malachi chapter 3, and this goes right along with what John was just saying. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, look at verses 16 through 18. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. In other words, those who feared the Lord got together and they talked with each other, and guess who was paying attention? God. And guess who was taking names? God. In the same way, all through, and this is what John was talking about, the Bible's very, very clear that he knows those who trust him, and he actually protects us. And that's something a lot of Christians, we need to keep in mind, and I, I wrote this in my notes, do we really understand how protected from the evil one and his minions we are now that we are in Christ? See, these people had a mark on their forehead that said, don't touch this person. And so the angels weren't allowed. And in Revelation, the demons weren't allowed to do anything to them. But at the same time, what is your mark? What is my mark? God himself within us. Jesus within us. 
Remember when Jesus, and I referenced it earlier tonight, walked on the earth and that man who had a legion of demons within him. Jesus walked up and those demons weren't afraid of physical Jesus. They saw God. They could see the spiritual realm, but part that our eyes can't see. Oh, once in a while, God in his purposes allows our human eyes to be able to function in such a way that they're able to see the spiritual realm. And that's why in Elisha praying, when the army was all around to capture them and, and the servant was afraid, Elisha just prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And his, all of a sudden he could see the chariots of fire all around the city. There are times that God may allow our physical eyes to open up in such a way to be able to see like it was with Balaam. The donkey could see it. But Balaam was then had his eyes opened by God and he could see the angel of the Lord. And in the same way, the demons who can see the spiritual realm saw God. And what was their reaction when they saw Jesus? They were like, well, we know who you are. Folks, listen to me and I need to clarify some things for you. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, the demons have that same reaction. Do you realize in this coming year, they cannot even tempt you without the Father's permission? Remember when Job appeared before God? Remember all the angels appeared before God and Satan came with him? So I said Job, but in the book of Job, Satan appeared before God. All the angels came and Satan came with him. And God said to Satan, what you've been up to? Of course, his answer was going to and fro throughout the earth. Second Peter tells us the reason he goes to and fro throughout the earth is to look for someone to... To devour. And God says, hey, if you're going around looking for someone to mess with, have you noticed Job? Let me point out Job. And we're all sitting there going, don't do that to me. <laughs> well, actually, listen, Jesus taught us to pray that. Remember the Lord's Prayer? We've been taught to say, Father, our Father who art in heaven. So we're taught to pray to the Father. And later on in that same prayer, lead us not into temptation. Wait a minute. Stop, stop, stop. Um, James chapter 1 verse 13 is very clear that God tempts no one. So why is he teaching us to pray to the Father? Don't lead me into temptation. Because the Bible says he controls whether or not anybody's able to touch you. That's why Jesus said to Simon Peter when Satan wanted to sift them all as wheat, he said, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Well, why is Satan asking? Folks, don't give Satan more credit than he deserves. He doesn't have the authority to do stuff to you whenever he wants. Because if he did, you'd be dead. You remember God said to Satan, what about Job? And Satan said, you protected him. You've put this hedge of protection. I can't touch him. And then God set the parameters Sometimes, and that's why in 1 Corinthians, listen closely, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has seized you but that which is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, provide a way to escape it. That's why he taught us when we pray to say, Father, don't point me out to Satan. But if you do, and your purposes are good, and I don't understand it, and I don't like buttermilk, and I don't like lard, but if you're doing it for a reason and you're using this for your purposes because all your purposes for me are good now that I'm in Christ, everything is yes, then deliver me from the evil one. And so we're going to understand, folks, we, as we walk out. Well, let me just show you how marked you are. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. You want to talk about a good mark, a good seal? Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. 
It says, in, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In chapter 4 of this same book, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which you have been sealed unto the day of redemption. You've been sealed, but you've not just been given a mark in your forehead. Jesus himself lives within you. Folks, you are untouchable in the spiritual realm unless the Father allows. And when the Father allows, he has his purposes, and it's for your growth and for his glory. Now, I also want to encourage you with something. Go to 1 John chapter 4. A lot of Christians lose sight of the fact, because we don't look at the spiritual realm, we look so much at the physical realm, thinking we live in the real world, a lot of t- Christians lose sight of the fact that we're in a battle. Remember how I just told you how those guys, 25 men in the temple, were praying to the sun and had no idea that their angels right there ready to kill them? They had no clue what was going on in the spiritual realm. We Christians sometimes lose sight of that. And in 1 John chapter 4, look at verse 4. It says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't lose sight of that. He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. Now along that line, let me also clarify some bad teaching running through some churches right now. You can't rebuke Satan. There are too many Christians out there that have been taught that they can just rebuke Satan and I cast Satan out of here. No, no, you can't. First off, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter, I think it's chapter 12, or chapter 2, we see everything in subjection to Jesus. Everything has been put under his feet. Yet, even though everything's been put under his feet, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Correct? Is Satan still the ruler of this world? Is Jesus totally controlling him? Not in the sense of stopping him from doing stuff. So if Jesus, who has all authority, as you remember he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. If he who has all authority is not exercising all authority and stopping Satan whenever, who are you to say that you can? And not only that, Satan's not afraid of you. And the Bible even shows us in the book of Jude, we got to be real careful. We start getting flippant when it comes to the spiritual realm. Because Jude even pointed out that when Gabriel argued with Satan over the body of Moses, he said, the Lord rebuke you. So yes, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But don't start puffing your chest up and thinking that you're going to go around and just tell Satan to get out of here. I want to help you by having you memorize scripture, get the scripture in your heart by putting the whole of the passage in. I'm going to start a verse for you and I want you to finish it for me. In James chapter four, verse seven, it says, resist the devil and what? See, that's the problem. Most of us can quote that verse, but that's not what the verse says. You've been taught half of the verse. Does anybody know what the whole verse says? I heard it. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Is he running away because you've resisted him? No, I picture myself backing up into his big robe as he's standing behind me. And then he leaves. Folks, there's a battle going on. That's why Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 talks about how we need to understand that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. 
but wrestle against spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms, and unfortunately, the evil, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And therefore, we need to put on the armor of who? Of God, exactly. And we need to put on the full armor, because we're in a full battle. And by the way, I'm going to tell you something about me. If you want to compete with me in anything, I'm going to say, sure, because I think I can beat everybody in the room at whatever game it is. It doesn't matter. I'm just, back when I used to play college basketball, and Michael Jordan was real big, People always say, well, you couldn't play Jordan one-on-one. I say, I'd give it a shot. And if he beat me, my next thought is, let's play again. I think I can get you next time. But if we do compete in any kind of a sport, I'm going to say to you, let's just get loose. Let's ping pong. Let's just hit a ball back and forth a little bit. I'm not warming up. You know what I'm doing? I'm sizing up. I'm finding out, are you good at hitting a forehand or a backhand? Do you like this spin or that spin? I make it look like I'm just getting loose, but I'm finding where your weaknesses are. We go to play a little basketball. These goals that are in here, we're, we're up. I say, let's just shoot for a little bit. And I'm going to find out where you can hit from consistently and where you can't. Where's your, are you good with your right hand, weak with your left? Because I want to win. And I want to go to your weakness. Satan wants to do the same thing. That's why you need the full armor of God. And here's the thing, folks. We, we have, first off, not understood how protected we are. And too many people are thinking, Satan's out to get me. Not without your father's permission. And at the same time, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. You can have victory over sin. I remember dealing with this one man years ago, and he and his wife were having this issue, and it was his fault, mainly because of his addictions. And... He said, are you saying I'm not saved? I said, that's not my call to determine whether or not you're saved. But I will tell you, the Bible says one of the evidences of the spirit is self-control. When you look at me and say, I can't help it, that's just the way I am, that contradicts the scriptures. So either Jesus is in you, and you have this power if you yield to it, or you don't. Whether you're saved or not, it's not my call. But I can tell you, the Bible says an evidence of the spirit is self-control. Folks, we need to learn as we go into 2017 to look at not what we see, but what the scripture says is the real world. Remember, he's taken names for those who fear the Lord, who trust in him. And those are the people that don't make their decisions according to how they feel or what they see. But they make their decisions according to what the scripture says and who God is. Now, a lot of us might not have even noticed this. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 9. I think that's the book we're studying tonight. You may not have noticed it, but in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 3, the Holy Spirit begins to leave the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 9, look at verse 3. It says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. If you remember... And I'm going to show you this in just a second, but I'll remind you that when Solomon built the temple and the Spirit of God came to indwell it, the, the glory of the Lord set on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the cherubim that were on the Ark of the Covenant had their wings facing each other? And the glory of the Lord set right there. And that's where his presence was, or the manifestation of his presence. He's everywhere. But the, excuse me, the manifestation of his presence was there above the cherubim. There were also in that temple two huge, remember way back in our early beginning of study of Ezekiel, we saw that they built the two 
cherub that were with their wings stretched out. One touched one wall. In the middle, of their wings touched. And on the other side, the retouched. There's these huge cherub, cherubim that were there, statues, gold statues in the Holy of Holies. And underneath their wings was the Ark of the Covenant. And the glory of God set on the Ark. And look closely at verse 9. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold. It's the glory of God moves from above the Ark the threshold. Now, before we go to the rest of the journey, let me take you back to, to uh, um, 1 Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 11. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. Before the king, sorry, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, and the, the tent of the meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted or numbered. I mean, they see this as a holy moment as they move the ark from the tabernacle to the temple now, the permanent structure that had been built. And then we go on here in verse uh, 6. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim, the ones I just described to you. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they couldn't be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So as they move the ark and God puts his spirit there in the temple, it's just an amazing time. You remember in our study of Ezekiel, all the wickedness that had started to go on and the glory of the Lord, even though it was right there, was being ignored they were just sinning. And boy, it's just such a sad state of affairs. Well, because of the Israel's idolatry, go back to Ezekiel chapter 8. You're going to see that God's spirit had to leave. In Ezekiel chapter 8, look at verses 5 and 6. Then God said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north. And behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. And in chapter 9, verse 3, we see the glory of God moves from above the ark of the cherub on the ark to the threshold. Look at chapter uh, 10, uh, verses 4 and 5. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Jump down to chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. You're going to see that God's glory not only goes from the cherub to the threshold, it now moves to the eastern gate of the temple complex. Look at verse 18 and 19 of chapter 10. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes, as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. 
and the glory of the Lord of Israel is over them. Now let me clarify for you, because you hear cherubim and cherubim and cherubim. Remember, in the temple in the Holy of Holies were these two huge cherubim that were made of gold, and their wings stretched straight out like this. One touched one wall, the other touched in the middle, and on the other side, this wing touched this wall, and this wing touched in the middle. Beneath their wings was where the Ark of the Covenant was put, and upon the, on the Ark were two cherubim, but their arms, the wings facing this way, and they touched each other, and that's where the glory of the Lord set. His glory left there, went to the threshold or the entrance of the temple. And then, you remember the cherubim, the real ones, not the, the ones that are images of them, but the real ones that he saw in chapter 1 that had the whirling wheels and all that kind of stuff that he traveled on? That real cherubim showed up there at the threshold, and the glory of the Lord got on top of those cherubim and moved to the eastern gate of the temple. Now look at chapter 11, verse 22. Then you're going to see that the Holy Spirit and the glory of God moves to the Mount of Olives east of the city, goes through the, out through the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And if you know your geography, that's the Mount of Olives. Now, I share this with you because this is the exact same route that the Bible, and I'm going to show it to you tonight, that the Bible says that the glory of God is going to return to the temple in the millennial kingdom. You see, after this temple was Zerubbabel's temple. Remember, that the, when Nebuchadnezzar came, they came and destroyed everything. And then Zerubbabel, during Zerubbabel's time, they rebuilt the temple, and people wept over the difference between Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple. But you never see anywhere that the Spirit of God indwells Zerubbabel's temple. It doesn't come back. And then, as you know, Herod helps, and by the time Jesus comes on the scene, Herod's enlarged the temple, and everybody's impressed with what Herod did, but the Spirit of God didn't ever come and indwell that temple. But I'm going to show you. Go to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel 43, when we get to our further study in Ezekiel, you're going to see that the millennial kingdom temple is the one that when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's going to enter the millennial kingdom temple and his glory is going to fill it. Now, again, keep in mind from our study of Revelation, we see that when Jesus returns during the end of the tribulation period, he goes first where? You remember, does anybody remember? Starts with a B. Basra. He goes to Basra. Remember the Jews are running out into the wilderness and they're protected there for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period and he appears to them there and he leads his sheep out of Basra. He defeats his enemies through the Valley of Ar Battle of Armageddon there in the Valley of Megiddo. He ascends the Mount of Olives and the book of Zechariah says that when he stands on the Mount of Olives it's going to split and he's then going to go from the Mount of Olives to the temple area through the eastern gate into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, the exact same route that he left. He's going to come back. You want to see? It's right here in Ezekiel 43. Look at verses 1 through, um, uh, we'll just, 1 through 7a, all right? Then he led me to the gate, to the, the gate facing east. This is the eastern gate. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. That's what we're reading about now. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal. We saw that in chapter 1. And I fell on my face, 
as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. When he comes back, he comes and he stays. He sets up his kingdom on the earth and his glory. And the way in which he left from the cherub to the threshold, to the eastern gate, out, is the way he's going to come back. Now, in the little bit of time we have left tonight, I want to clarify some bad teaching about the eastern gate and that being sealed and all. Because a lot of prophecy people, people that I love and respect and some I even know personally, there are a lot of people get all excited, and if you do any study about Jesus' return and the temple and the eastern gate, you're going to see that right now the eastern gate of Jerusalem is sealed. It was sealed and walled off by the Ottoman Turks in around 1500. And because they had heard that there was this prophecy that said that the Messiah was going to come in through that gate when he came back. So they sealed it. And then to make sure that the Messiah couldn't come back, they put a Muslim cemetery right outside it. If you go and look and do your research, you'll find there's a Muslim cemetery outside the Eastern Gate. Because their thinking is this. No self-righteous Jewish person would make his way through a, Jewish, a Muslim cemetery. He'd become defiled and unclean, so he ain't going to do that. So they think they got him protected from coming back because the prophecy said he's going to come through that gate. Unfortunately... There are prophecy people that understand about the millennial kingdom and are excited about the return of Jesus. And they are saying that that gate is going to be sealed until Jesus comes back and blows it open. And they use Ezekiel 44 as their proof text. And I want you to just briefly, we'll go into it in a lot more detail when we get to Ezekiel 44. I think it's around 2018, 2019. But, uh, but what... what when we get to Ezekiel 44, we'll break this down a whole lot more. But I just want you to look closely. I want you to, let me just say this to you real quick before I read it to you. Christians today believe the Bible's real and true. And they want so bad for the world to see it, sometimes we, in our excitement, will try to make it say stuff that it's not saying. Or in other words, we try to make things that are happening right now match up with the scriptures to say that's the fulfillment. Relax. God doesn't need us to speed it up. For example, have you ever heard people say, well, the Bible says there's going to be earthquakes and famines and all this stuff, and that's the beginning of the birth pains. Therefore, all these earthquakes are proof. Well, that's not what that passage is saying. In Matthew 24, when he talks about the earthquakes and the famines, he's talking about the beginning of the tribulation period. It matches right up with the first six seals. He opens the first seal and the Antichrist comes out, right? The rider on the white horse. Jesus said there's going to be Antichrist. Then he opens the second seal and there's war, right? He said that peace is removed from the earth and men are able to slay each other and there's going to be wars. Then he opens the sixth, sorry, third seal and what happens? There's famine and they have to, you know, day's wages for a piece of bread, a loaf of bread. And what did Jesus say? There's going to be false Christs, wars, famines, earthquakes. It's all the seals. But he says these are just the beginning. Of the birth pains. And the birth pains is referring to that beginning of the tribulation period. So, yes, there's been a lot more earthquakes on the earth as over the years. And we could even show you mathematically and how there's been, but that's not the fulfillment of Matthew 24. And so what people have done is they've taken Ezekiel 44, where it talks about the sealing of the temple, 
the eastern gate, and they didn't read it. I want you to read it. Look at Ezekiel 44, um, verses 1 through 3. And then he brought me back to the outer gate. Now, wait a minute. Why is he bringing him back to the outer gate? What had just happened in chapter 43? He had seen the glory of the Lord come through the eastern gate, right? And into the temple. And he'd been brought to the temple. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which, is, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Do you see it? It shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. We'll deal more later in our study who the prince is and all that kind of stuff. It's a fun, fun study. But look closely. What does the scripture say? Does it say that it needs to remain shut until he comes? Or does it say it needs to be remain shut because he's already come? It's so clear. He's already come through. This is after he enters the temple it's to be shut, and no one else is to go through it because the Lord has come through that gate. And so everybody gets all excited about the fact that the eastern gate was sealed up, and they're thinking, oh, that's the prophecy. No, the prophecy says it's to be sealed because he's already come through. Not sealed until he comes through, which is what they're saying. So that's just a brief thing. We're going to close tonight with Psalm 24. And folks, I hope you're starting to get excited about how the scriptures are coming to life the more you understand what the prophecies are saying about the last days and God's plan for Israel and the millennial kingdom, because all of a sudden, some of these uh, psalms that we've read for years hopefully are going to come to life. Listen to Psalm 24 now with our picture of Jesus coming into the gates of the city in the, in the second coming. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Isn't that cool? Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. He's coming back, guys. He's coming back. And that's going to be an amazing time. And let me just share this with you as we close. You know what we read there in Ezekiel 43 about Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives in his glory through the eastern gate into the temple and setting up there on his throne? You're going to see it. You're going to see it. Because when he comes back, we're going to come with him. And we're going to see that amazing, as sad as it is to watch the history recorded here of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. We're going to be there when he goes back. That's kind of cool. I love you. We'll see you next week.